Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers, who they were, what they did, and how. Episode 138. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Rosaland Viborg Thun, and welcome to the sixth installment of the Robert Hansen Saga. Last episode, we witnessed together how the butcher baker kidnapped, raped, tortured, and then left an innocent young woman to die, naked in the freezing Alaskan winter wilderness. We also learned more of what happened to poor Barbara Fields following her ordeal. The story of Hansen is a long one partly because he simply stands out to me as one of the top three most fascinating serial killer superstars, alongside Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer, but also because his crimes were so many and so unique. Tonight, our journey into the very pits of depravity continues. As Virgil told Dante on his travels throughout the nine circles of hell, Thou follow me, and I will be thy guide, and lead thee hence through the eternal place. Fix your eyes below upon the valley, for now we near the stream of blood, where those who injure others violently boil. O blind cupidity and insane anger, which goad us on so much in our short life, then steep us in such grief eternally. The way is long, the path is difficult. Enjoy. As always, I want to publicly thank my elite TSK Producers Club. This club includes 26 dignified members of exquisite taste, and their names are Anne, 
Anthony, Brenda, Brian, Cassandra, Christy, Cody, Colleen, Corbin, Fawn, James, Jennifer, Kathy, Kylie, Lisa, Lisbeth, Mark, Mickey, Monica, Russell, Sabina, Samira, Scortnia, Trent, William, and Zarsia. You are the backbone of the Serial Killer Podcast, and without you, there would be no show. You have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. As always, if you want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash the serial killer podcast link in the show description to join the tsk producers club costs 15 dollars to access all bonus material it costs 10 dollars so don't miss out and join now For six months, Robert Hansen was a model resident at the Halfway House, a good employee at the Safeway Bakery and a cooperative client at the Langdon Psychiatric Clinic. At the end of November 1972, psychologist Dr. Alan H. Parker informed the parole board of Hansen's excellent progress in therapy and how well he was handling his frequent work release and the weekend passes to visit his family. Parker concluded his report to the board, I quote, Because of Hansen's demonstrated capacity to handle the freedom he now has, I recommend he be paroled, end quote. Hansen wasn't paroled, but he was released from the halfway house on general furlough, which, for all practical purposes, was the same thing. His life was getting back to quote-unquote normal. Robert Hansen, however, was not getting better or less violent. While he was lying to his psychiatrist in therapy, he was daydreaming about rape and murder. The thought of taking revenge on women, or sluts as he thought of them, that had made it so that he was serving a prison sentence was all-consuming. He delighted in his ability to fool law enforcement into thinking that he was a harmless family man. It would be many years before his mask of sanity would drop. Located 128 miles, that's about 205 kilometers, south of Anchorage on the Kenai Peninsula, Seward is a small town nestled between Mount Marathon and Resurrection Bay. Besides a fish cannery, a state vocational school, a resort, and a shipbuilding and repair industry, it has a small boat harbor where Robert Hansen moored his 36-foot Chris Craft boat, the Christie M, during the 70s. The boat had room for six people that could spend the night. 
and Robert used it for a lot of fishing and hunting activities. His wife Gloria didn't go on the boat much because she got seasick easily, but the couple did fish for halibut off Chevelle Island and dropped bottom nests for pink shrimp and crab near Driftwood Cove. Hansen liked to anchor in Thumbs Cove and hunt black bear and goats on shore and the nearby hills, where an abundance of skunk cabbage vegetation lured game into the area. Once, some divers chartered Hansen's boat to explore the bay to see if there were enough sea cucumbers to make commercial harvesting feasible. There weren't. But Hansen made out well. He not only got the fee for the charter, the men also taught him how to scuba dive. Hansen liked to dive around the rock piles of the quote-unquote Iron Doors area, where there were lots of fish and pods of sea lions and whales in the spring. Having now lived in Alaska for several years, Gloria was missing the company of her family. She hadn't seen her parents for more than two years, and they in turn had never seen their new granddaughter. And so it was that mother and daughter flew down to the lower 48 to spend part of the summer of 1973 with Gloria's parents. Robert Hansen did not join his wife on this trip, and he found himself completely on his own, free to do whatever he pleased, without thinking of ways to conceal it to his wife. The prospect of the summer of 1973 seemed to Hansen as a dream come true. For his victims, the summer would turn out to be one of absolute hell. On the 7th of July, 1973, Seventeen-year-old Megan Emmerich took her washing to the laundromat in the Seward Skills Center Girls' Dormitory. When her clothes were dried, she carried them back to her room. After changing, folding, and putting them away, she decided to go into town. The five-foot-three Megan stood in front of her mirror and ran a brush through her long, dark blonde hair which was complemented by big hazel eyes. Megan was born and raised in Delta Junction, Alaska, and her family was of Irish origins. She enjoyed horses, motorcycles, rock music, fishing and hunting on the Yukon River with her family. When she left the dormitory, she was never seen again. All of Megan's personal belongings, including her identification, were left behind. Her roommate searched for her for three days before reporting her disappearance to police, who did not have any more success in locating the young woman. I bring up Megan's case, since the media have portrayed Hansen as a serial killer who exclusively targeted prostitutes. As with Barbara Fields, Megan was a so-called high-risk victim. She was loved by friends and family, attended vocational school, and, if I am to speculate, she was probably abducted by Hansen as she was walking alone towards the town centre. What happened next is a mystery. 
to cement his reputation as a stand-up, salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. Hansen went out of his way to be accommodating towards his co-workers, especially the women. Irma Knight, Hansen's co-worker at Safeway, went into the wilderness with him and lived to tell about it. She went hunting with Robert in the fall of 1973. She later stated to authorities, and I quote, Bob had wanted us to come over to his house to see his trophies, but we never went. It wasn't that kind of friendship, but as a favor, he was my guide for a goat hunt. End quote. Irma's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Knight, sailed their own Chris Craft boat down to Seward, and while Mr. Knight stayed on their boat in a cove, Irma went up into the mountains alone with Hansen. While there, he showed her how to hunt large wild goats and helped her shoot two porcupines resting in a tree. As they were taking a break, he offered her a candy bar and hot cocoa. The Knight's family subsequently bought the Sportsman's Inn in Vittier that winter. The next summer both of them hunted with Hansen down at Seward. They had nothing but good things to say about Robert Hansen until his crimes were revealed to the public many years later. Hansen, meanwhile, was hungry for something that could soothe his desires. Playing nice with the knights had taken its toll on him. Under a panorama of northern lights on a brisk September night in 1974, pretty sixteen-year-old Layla was walking home to Gamble Street after a party. Her name is a pseudonym, as she wants to remain anonymous to the public. The open fronts of her party shoes were letting her toes get cold. As she crossed the street, a man, waiting in a parked car, rolled down his window and asked if she wanted a ride. Though she didn't usually hitchhike, the man was soft-spoken and polite. He didn't seem threatening. She accepted. To her, he looked like a complete dork, with horn-rimmed glasses, big acne scars, and he was very skinny. She didn't think for a second that behind the dorky exterior hid a human monster waiting to pounce. At her house, Robert Hansen would not let her out of the car and pulled a gun when she tried to resist. Terror gripped the young woman as they drove away. Lila later recalled Hansen getting very talkative, asking about her boyfriend he asked her to relay detailed information about her sex life, how many times she had sex with her boyfriend, what she let him do to her, and how many boys she had slept with. Leila sensed that he might explode in a rage if she lied to him. So she told him honestly about all the awkward questions he asked. As she was being quizzed, she got a feeling that this was almost routine to him, that he had done it before. Next, Hansen made her take off everything except her blouse, and then he forced her to perform oral sex on him while he held the gun to her head. 
Next, he made her flash her breasts to a passing motorist. This forced public humiliation of the flashing illustrated his need to dominate his victim. After several hours of making Layla please him, including full-on raping her several times, Hansen drove around trying to find another girl so that he could force them to have sex with each other and him at the same time. Luckily, he didn't find anyone he would be able to abduct. For a long while, he drove around aimlessly. Layla thought he was trying to decide what to do with her. Suddenly, Robert Hansen handed her the gun and said, and I quote, Okay, now you can do whatever you want with me, or you can order me to drive you to the police station. End quote. It is hard to tell what he may have had in mind at this point. That he felt guilty and wanted to be arrested is very doubtful. Serial rapist killers are seldom, if ever, remorseful. Robert Hansen has never expressed remorse not even during his final trial. However, an urge for self-destruction is not uncommon among criminals like Hansen. He could have wanted her to shoot him. But, most likely, it was simply a control game. Layla suspected as much, too. If she had tried to shoot him, it is not unlikely that the gun would have been unloaded and that Hansen then would have killed her. Same thing if she told him to take her to the police station. Being a smart woman, she didn't try to shoot him and didn't tell him to take her to the nearest police station. Instead, she tried to please him by complimenting their time together. Hansen took the gun back and drove around some more, but then suddenly stopped the car near town. He told her, he would hunt her down and kill her if she tried to contact the police. Layla promised, as long as he would let her live. She kept her promise and did not contact the authorities. However, when she got home to her foster parents, she told them she had been raped. They offered to call the police on her behalf, but she declined. The next day, the victim of violence became the victim of blame. Layla's foster parents called social service authorities and asked that she be taken out of their home. They did not give a reason. As with Barbara Fields, Hansen had let Layla go because she had submitted to his will completely and pleased him enough that he didn't get the urge to kill then and there. However, his urge to kill was not sated, and he would soon be on the prowl for a fresh victim. Mary K. Thill was twenty-two years old, five foot five, and slender, weighing only one hundred and thirty pounds, that's about fifty-nine kilograms. She had long and wavy red hair, and wore thick, round glasses in pink frames. She was dressed in Levi's, a grey pullover sweater, hiking boots, and had a small backpack with her when some friends gave her a ride from the Lowell Point home into Seward on the 5th of July, 
1975. After they dropped her off, she disappeared. Thill's husband was away from home, working up at Prudhoe in the new oil field on the North Slope. Finding out his wife was missing, he returned home and put up a $1,000 reward for any information as to Mary's whereabouts or disappearance. It went unclaimed. Again, we see a victim that is neither a stripper or a prostitute. She was a respected member of the community and well-liked by friends and family. To Hansen, she was nothing but prey. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener, and as a man, I was and am often told to suck it up, keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations, but never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serial killer today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash serial killer. By now, Hansen was getting tired of prowling the streets for hours at a time, waiting for the chance of some random woman to be walking alone and being vulnerable for abduction. He wanted easy access. And in October of 1975, he left his wife and daughter at home and went downtown Anchorage to visit a string of strip joints. At the Kit Kat Club on Old Seward Highway, one dancer who was giving him a lap dance turned him especially on. He waved a roll of bills in front of her and asked her if she would like to have some fun later on. The dancer agreed to meet him after her shift. Later, in the parking lot of a restaurant called The Fork and Spoon at the corner of Old Seward and Tudor Drive, 
the dancer got into Hansen's car. In a rare case of admitting what he had done, Hansen would retell his actions to law enforcement. I quote, I tried to act as tough as I could right away, so as to get the girl as scared as possible and get control. Even before I started talking, I would reach over, get my hand in the girl's hair, and then jerk her head back and put a gun in her face. I wanted to get him to feel helpless, scared. End quote. After he got control that night, he took the woman to the foothills of the Chugach State Park, raped her, and then let her go. The victim went to a rape crisis center and made a positive identification of her assailant from a photo file. She remembered the license number of his vehicle and identified the firearm Hansen put to her head as a Model 38 Smith & Wesson. But the woman refused to go to police headquarters and file charges. She was a school teacher up in Alaska to earn some big money, and she didn't want any publicity. In terror of her assailant, she fled the state the next day. State trooper Sam Bernard took the investigation as far as he could without formal charges being filed by the victim. The license number she had given checked out to Robert Hansen, and Bernard became convinced he was guilty. He told Hansen's parole officer, Wayne Burgess, what he suspected. When Burgess confronted Hansen about the incident, Hansen admitted being with the woman, but with a stutter said, and I quote, I thought it was the date. Then she she asked for money, and I refused to pay. So she she gets mad and hollers rape, end quote. This would not be the last time Hansen used this ruse with authorities. The parole officer did not believe Hansen's story, but unfortunately there was nothing he could do about it at the time. Back then, in the mid-seventies, parole regulations were much more relaxed than they are today. The booming pipeline economy expanded business for Anchorage wholesalers. In 1975, as a Teamster member, Robert Hansen took a second job as a laborer on the loading dock at Alaska Cold Storage. The Hansons now had a baby son, and with two children they were saving to buy a larger home. By July 1976, Robert and Gloria were able to put a $37,000 down payment on an $88,000 house on Old Harbor Avenue in Muldoon. Hansen's parents came to visit in September and see their son's new home. But, being a person of means, did not stop Robert Hansen's thievery, one reason being his pathological frugality. He simply hated to pay for things. But mainly it was for the thrill of it all. When he shoplifted, he would come close to ejaculating in his pants. 
The act gave a similar sort of satisfaction as he got when he was with a prostitute. As I have stated earlier in this series, Hansen was not a very intelligent man. He was wily and somewhat clever, but not intelligent. This lack of intelligence comes to show in his absolute disregard of the consequences of his actions. Having been convicted of serious crimes earlier, the law enforcement authorities were not inclined to go easy on him if he was to be caught red-handed again. If Hansen had given this some thought, he probably would have acted differently. Instead, he entertained magical thinking that people didn't see him, that he was almost invisible to crowds and onlookers. In the period after his rape of the schoolteacher until 1978, no girls would be abducted, raped, tortured, and killed in and around the Kenai Peninsula and Anchorage. The reason for this is that Hansen was caught trying to steal a chainsaw. He did so in broad daylight and tried to simply pick it up and walk out of the store. A security guard had observed him acting suspiciously and had followed him. Outside of the store, he apprehended Hansen and the police were called. Normally, a shoplifting charge would not have resulted in prison time, but being a repeat offender, both as a thief and a violent felon, the judge had no interest in going easy on him. He was sentenced to five years in Juno Penitentiary. Thanks to his psychiatrist and defense team, he managed to only serve two years behind bars before being let out on parole in 1978. Just a few weeks after his release from prison, Robert Hansen murdered a black woman at Summit Lake on the Kenai Peninsula. She was the first of at least 17 women he would kill between that fall of 1978 and his arrest in 1983. In 1977, while Robert Hansen was in prison, his buddy John Summerall enjoyed some good bow hunting. When Robert was released in 1978, just in time for most of the hunting season, he and Summerall resumed their camaraderie in the outdoors. One of their favorite haunts was the Canick River, north of Anchorage. Many times they walked its banks and sprawling sandbars, carrying blunts or sawed-off broadheads, arrows, to practice shooting their bows from different undetermined ranges. While Summerall continued to hone his bow-hunting skills, Hansen followed a new track and bought a two twenty-three caliber Ruger Mini-14. This was a semi-automatic weapon similar in appearance to the military M-16. He said he bought the gun to shoot fox, coyotes, and wolves. Eventually, the Mini-14 would become Hansen's weapon choice for his two-legged victim. Imagine, if you will, dear listener, a young woman of maybe 16 to 18 years of age. She is beautiful and half-naked, 
wearing only a flimsy blouse that has been shredded so it flaps about her body. Quickly getting out of breath, she is sprinting as fast as she can along the sand embankment of a river deep in the Alaskan wilderness. She turns her head to look behind her, but she can't see anyone, so she lets herself slow a bit to catch her breath. Looking around her, she realizes she is in deep trouble. She has never been this deep into the wilderness, even while hiking with her friends. But she's been taught that a sure way to reach safety, if lost in the Alaskan wild, is to follow a river. Sooner or later, you will hit civilization. A small blossom of hope rises in her. But, just as it started, she hears a noise. It's the sound of a propeller airplane. She turns, and there she sees it. It is flying low over the tree line, and suddenly it turns and heads straight for her. Her heart freezes with fear as she recognizes the plane. It was the one the geeky-looking maniac had taken her a few hours earlier in. Her hopes, moments before, are dashed, but she runs anyway. She runs all she can and tries to reach the tree line only a few yards away. Just before she reaches the trees, a shot rings out. She stumbles, coughs blood, falls down, and as she chokes on her last breath, she can see the plane taxiing on the riverbank. Then everything goes dark forever. Having bought an airplane, Hansen began to fly to the Kanik River area to practice becoming an excellent bush pilot. On the river's big flat sandbars, there was no air traffic to contend with. So, as Hansen put it during interrogation years later, he could go and go and go. Laying pine trees at each end of his wilderness runway, he would land between them then keep picking areas where the pines were closer and closer together to practice shorter landings. Robert Hansen's monomania gave him a tenacity to focus and develop skills he would put to deadly use. The Kanik River area was the place he practiced to hone that skill, and he would go to great lengths to perfect his skills in shooting targets from the airplane while in the air. One exercise was to throw balloons weighted with a nut or sinker into the river's slow-moving current below. Then, going up in his airplane, he'd shoot at them, and the splashes in the water told him where his bullets were hitting. In the winter, instead of balloons, he would shoot at ice chunks floating down the river. To put it like this, dear listener, even though it has never been 100% verified, I am quite convinced that Hansen would let some of his victims out into the wilderness, then chase them from his plane, shooting them down from above. On the 14th of October, 1979, Christy Hayes was dancing at the Embers, a club in downtown Anchorage. 
She did a table dance for a fellow who was sitting by himself, nursing a bear. The man's gaze trailed up her black legs, and, through his glasses, his eyes met hers. He flashed a roll of money, and with a stutter asked if they could meet later. Later, after Hayes got into the back of Hansen's camper on an agreement to perform oral sex, Hansen pulled a gun. But this time there was a glitch in his routine when he grabbed his victim by the hair. You see, Christie was wearing a wig, and it came off when he gave it a yank. But he quickly recovered and got back to business. He forced his victim to strip. Then he bound her with a snare wire. Faring for her life, Christie began to scream. Her captor's threats did not shut her up. They made her more hysterical. Worried that someone would hear the screams and call the police, Hansen jumped out of the back of the camper and into the cab to drive out to the wilderness. As he maneuvered the pickup through the streets of Anchorage to get to Glen Highway, Christie managed to squirm out of her bonds. Now, besides screaming, she was pounding on the camper walls. It was getting to be too much for Hansen. Things were slipping out of his control, and he would not stand for that. He slammed on the brakes, causing his captive to fall forward and bash her head on the camper wall. Hansen got out and ran around to the back of the camper. There, he found that the clever girl Christie had locked the camper door. Meanwhile, she crawled through the sliding glass window between the camper and the cab and locked the cab doors. But the driver's window was rolled part way down, and Hansen ran up and stuck his arm through to pull up the lock. As fast as she could, Christie cranked the window up, trapping Robert's arm. Now, completely consumed by rage, with a tremendous jerk, Hansen freed his arm and broke the window. Then, he yanked his naked victim out of the cab and threw her on the ground. Before he could hurt her any more, Hayes bounced to her feet and ran down the street, absolutely determined to survive. Hansen tried running after her, but gave up after a couple of blocks. He had never been in particularly good physical shape. He went back to his camper, threw Christie's clothes on the ground, and drove off. Naked and holding her badly bruised face, Christie Hayes kept running and screaming for help. She reported the assault to police, but was not able to identify her assailant from mugshots or provide them with any leads. Also, being a stripper and known prostitute, the police did not pay particular attention to her story. This time, Hansen had not been given sexual satisfaction, and he was not given the satisfaction of getting a fresh kill. He was furious and determined to learn from his mistakes. Just over a week after his attack on Hayes, he kidnapped a 17-year-old girl from outside the 4th Avenue movie theatre, under the pretext of giving her a lift. He drove her out deep into the wilderness, 
But before he could start raping and killing her, she told him that she was homeless and had not eaten for two days. Once again, something switched off inside of Hansen, and he simply stopped what he was doing, told her to get in the car, drove her back to Anchorage, and let her go without assaulting her. Later that fall, however, things turned out differently. Hansen cut a deal for sex with a young woman who would come to be called Eklutna Annie, thought to have come to Anchorage from Kodiak Island. She was wearing blue jeans, a sweater, brown leather jacket, and high-heeled, red calf-length zip-up boots when she got into his gold camper. Hansen recalled the incident later in police custody. I quote, I can't remember if she was a prostitute or dancer. I picked her up downtown and told her I was going to take her to my home. I was heading up to Eklutna Road. There are several offshoot roads there. I did quite a bit of bear hunting in the area. I built four bear stands in the vicinity. End quote. When it became obvious to Annie, no one to this day knows her true name, that Hansen was not taking her to his home, she told him she wanted him to turn around and let her go. He retorted, that they were going to go a little further. She tried to firmly state that she had no intention of going with him, but he simply answered by pointing a gun in her face. He further said, and I quote, Oh yes, you are. You do exactly what I say, and you won't get hurt. Continuing north on Glen Highway, toward the Kanik River, he turned off onto Eklutna Road heading east toward Eklutna Lake. Fall rains had combined with the summer runoff from Eklutna Glacier to make the lakes and streams water level high, and many of the capillary roads and trails of the main road contained water hazards. The one Robert turned onto did. It quickly became a muddy swamp, and he got stuck. Hansen had a winch on his truck. He convinced his captive to help him use it to get the pickup out of the mud. He drove while she was outside working with the cable of the winch. It took a while, an inch-by-inch process. But I finally got the vehicle unstuck. Hansen was driving back to pick the woman up when she started to move away into the woods. He yelled to her to stay put, but she started running. He slammed the engine off and got out and ran after her. Catching up with her, he grabbed the terrified woman by the hair. In the struggle, she reached into her purse and pulled out a big black-handled buck knife. She swung it toward Hansen, but he grabbed the hand that the knife was in and tripped her to the ground. Hysterically, she pleaded, Don't kill me! Don't kill me! He tried to calm her, saying he wasn't going to kill her, but she kept on, screaming back, You are! You are going to kill me! The woman was right. His victim was lying face down on the ground when he plunged the knife into her back. He buried her in a shallow grave in the path of a power line. Now, 
How do we know these events? Considering Annie was killed, and there were no witnesses except Hansen himself. Well, dear listener, we don't. Notice how Hansen's telling of the events of this murder almost lays the blame for the murder on Annie herself. His story is of a man who simply wanted to have some fun with a prostitute, but because she attacked him, he had no choice but to kill her. In my honest opinion, the whole story reeks. The details regarding the winch and the abductions ring true. Hansen would have no reason to make those details up. But the rest of it sounds made up. And it sounds like it's made up to put Hansen in a better light to authorities and the public. We are familiar with Hansen's modus operandi. He liked to abduct women, rape them, then seemingly letting them go, when in actuality he would then hunt them down in the wild. I find it far more plausible that Hansen had his way with her, then telling her to run away, giving her a little head start. He would then go after her. Annie was found in the wild, and she was indeed murdered by being stabbed once in the back, causing her to either bleed to death or drown in her own blood, an extremely painful death. The fact that she was stabbed instead of just shot, shows that Hansen used a variety of tools for killing. Sometimes he stabbed a victim, like he had done with the girl found frozen to death, but most times he shot them. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And with that, we come to the end of part six of the saga of Robert Hansen, the Butcher Baker. I hope you enjoyed listening to me telling it to you. Next episode, number 139 in number, will be the penultimate episode in the saga of his life and crimes. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. Finally, I wish to thank you dear listener, for listening. If you like this podcast, you can support it by donating on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, facebook.com slash theskpodcast, or by posting on the subreddit theskpodcast. Thank you. Good night, and good luck. Good luck.